Now please turn your Bibles to the Epistle of Jude. The Epistle of Jude, the penultimate book, of course, in our New Testament. The Epistle of Jude. And we're going to read from the verse number 1. Jude, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which is once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord and our Lord Jesus, only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. And yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a reeling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots." Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Amen. May God be pleased to bless his word uh, to your hearts today and help us to come to uh, this time around the table. You will know that Jude is here addressing a problem uh, that is in the church. Uh, Not an uncommon problem. We see it addressed in various of the New Testament epistles. But false teachers have crept into the church. Verse number four, for there are certain men crept in unawares. These are not outside preachers, but are men who have infiltrated the church. They've come in and they are spreading false doctrine. And that false doctrine is having an impact upon the people of God. And so while Jude's desire was to write of the common salvation, he's had to write and Exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith, that body of Christian doctrine encompassing the person and work of Christ Jesus. So Jude draws from the Old Testament to rebuke and expose these dangerous individuals. And you have the verses there, verse 5 and following, 
where there are various ways in which the Old Testament is used uh, to address the problem of false teachers in the church, ultimately, that they will not escape the judgment of God. It's a serious thing to spread false doctrines in the church of Jesus Christ. But as you make your way down, you'll see in verse number 12 how that, that verse opens with a fascinating clause. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Fascinating. What are these feasts? Well, as usual, there are uh, different ideas. Uh, The more you study and read commentaries, the more how often you see there are different ideas in almost everything. You've got to work your way through these things and think, well, what's, what's the reality here? Some think these feasts were not proper. They were pagan feasts, so they suggest. But the early church fathers certainly acknowledged the presence of feasts like this. John Gill makes the point, these here seem to be the agape or love feasts of the primitive Christians. That there were in the church these times of feasting together, the design of which, says Gill, was to maintain and promote brotherly love from whence they took their name, and to refresh the poor saints that they might have a full and comfortable meal now and then. So the church coming together, Christian love, sharing a meal together, and also through that enabling the poor to have a full and a comfortable meal now and then. And Gill describes how these were kept. They involved prayer and singing, and they were marked by simplicity. We, of course, have similar feasts and meals in our own congregation here. I think we get some idea about these feasts from Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you will know that in that chapter there is the addressing of the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that's addressed there is the abuse of the Lord's Supper and what's happening there. And it says in verse number 20, When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Now there are those who suggest that these love feasts were often held in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And what you're seeing here in Corinth is an abuse of the Lord's Supper because of an abuse in these love feasts. These things that are causing great problems and disunity in the church. They are dividing the church, not uniting the church. And you have, again, this idea of feasting back in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, where they refer to, again, the fellowshipping with the devil and with the Lord. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers at the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And so whatever happened in Corinth, there was some abuse of these feasts. But as Paul corrects this, he does not tell them to stop coming together in this way. He corrects them. He doesn't abandon the principle or the practice. He says, no, when you have the Lord's Supper, make sure you do it like this. And so these love feasts, more than likely those referred to in Jude, They are the feasts that were held by early Christians in connection with the Lord's Supper. Now, I put it to you this way. The command of Christ is to hold the Lord's Supper as we do, without necessarily the feasts. 
The feasts were permitted, but they were not necessarily part of the Lord's Supper, but they did in the early church practice, they, they came together. But the connection with the Lord's Supper, I think, gives us lessons from this verse in Jude that would often govern our thoughts around this table. If there's a connection here, surely if the church holds a feast of charity, a love feast, well, this is it. This is really the ultimate love feast of the church. We come together as those who know the love of God. So as you think about our time around the table this morning, let's begin by remembering this is a feast. It is to remember the charity in the church. A feast remembering charity in the church. Love. Again, the words used here, these are spots in your feasts of charity. And I think likely there is a reference to the Lord's Supper here. And as we come in this fashion, this is a feast to remember charity, love. God's love for us, first of all. God commended his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What are we to do at this time? We are to examine ourselves. And as we examine ourselves, surely we see within ourselves sin. You think of the Ten Commandments as good occasionally before you come to the table to work your way through the Ten Commandments and remind yourself again that you are a sinner in the sight of God. That you've broken God's law, you have not kept God's law. We're to love God above all. And surely even this past week we have not done that in perfection. We are to worship God correctly. And how often we come and we sing the praises of God and yet our heart is not properly in it. We're to take God's name with reverence. And again at times we carry the name of God in this world and we carry God's name in this world in a way that is not worthy of his name. We have the name of Christian and yet we behave in a manner that is not worthy of that name. This is the Lord's day. We're to keep God's day as a holy day, a day honorable, the entire day. Not just one hour or two hours, but the entire day as a day unto God. And surely each and every Lord's day we find ourselves and we're guilty of not keeping God's day as we ought. We're to honor father and mother. And yet our families are marked by sin. Within every sphere of family life, in fact in society, we are those who are bent towards rebellion and not submission to due authority. We are those, of course, And we're to value life. And yet we even treat our own bodies in such a way at times that we do not value our own lives. We are those who are guilty. We're told to guard our marriages. And yet we find ourselves with impure thoughts in our minds continually. These things are part and parcel of living in a fallen world. We're bombarded with all manner of immorality around us. We've got to keep ourselves pure. And yet we struggle in these areas. We are those who are not to sin by stealing And yet we've been given breath of God, and yet we steal from God the gifts that he's given to us. We are not to bear false witness, and yet we delight, don't we, sometimes? We delight to hear false witness about other people. Where do you run on the internet searches, on the news articles? You run to those things about others, the salacious rumors about someone in this area or that area, and you delight in knowing what may well be false witness. We find ourselves coveting all manner of things in this world. And so you come here and you examine yourself and we go on and on and on and you realize again that we are sinners in the sight of God and therefore it is wonder of wonders that we come here and we remember Christ's death and in so doing, we remember the love of God. 
This is a feast to remember charity, remembering God's love for us, and in turn, remembering our love for the Lord. Because we can come here knowing our sin, and yet we can still say, My Jesus, I love thee. Know thou art mine. And by God's wonderful grace, we understand that we've been changed in such a way that we can, of a true heart, say, I am not a hater of God's. I'm a lover of God's. The Lord loves us and we love the Lord. And in so doing, we also remember our love, the one for the other. We partake together. That was the Corinthian problem. There was such division and schism and that worked out even the Lord's table. But we come and we partake together. The Lord has not led you to another church. The Lord's led you here. And if the Lord led you here, he led your brother and sister here, and he led you together into this body. And we are to delight in that unity, remembering charity in this community. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love the one for the other. Secondly, this feast is a feast that recalls God's generosity. To the community. It's a feast. This is a feast. Of course, in the early church, these feasts were given to show love among the brethren. They are called feasts of charity. But they are feasts of charity. There's a time of, again, a sense of God providing love among the brethren, sharing what they had. And we, we do this, we, we bring food together and we share that food. It's a mark of saying, well, I, I love you and I'm going to share what God has given me with you and we can feast together. At the same point as providing for the poor. This is true Christian fellowship, but it is a mark of God's generosity to us that we have these feasts, food to sustain and food to delight. It's not what makes a feast different. Right. And if you're good, you will delight whatever you have. No matter how simple the food may be in a given day, it will bring you delight. But there's something about a feast that is given intentionally to cause delight. The flavors, the smells, the appearance, all of this. And then you're, you're all hungry now, I understand that. But you get that in a feast. It is to provoke delight. It's not to be a drudgery to feast. It is to be a delight. And what we see physically here, of course, points us to the great gospel feast spiritually. Isaiah 25 reminds us that God in Mount Zion in Jerusalem made unto all people a feast of fat things, pointing to Christ in the gospel. Christ comes and brings a feast of fat things. Christ, I am their bread of life. He sustains us. But Christ is not properly honored if we simply are sustained by Christ without delighting in Christ. And so as we come around the table, we are to rejoice in God's generosity to us. He has given us a feast of gospel promises, a feast of gospel blessings, a feast of gospel pleasures, things that we can think upon and meditate upon and delight in today as we come around the table. The Lord God has been generous to us, not miserly, not in any way reluctant in blessing us, but has blessed us with all and every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so list them. Think of all the things the Lord has done for you and given to you even personally. Of course, the feast is Christ, but every spiritual gift comes in Christ, wrapped in Christ. You have the blessing of your regeneration. 
by God's grace, you're born again. You've been given what? A new heart. You've been given a new family. A new standing, no longer guilty but righteous. All of those things, a new inheritance. All these things are great gospel blessings. The generosity of God. You're like the prodigal son that returns. And you're not forced to work as a slave in the corner. You're a son. And what happens when you come to God as a son? You're given a feast. A feast of charity. Delighting in the generosity of God. But thirdly, this feast is a feast that requires purity in the church. Look what it says here in our text. These are spots in your feasts of charity. These false teachers they joined in these feasts. And they came, they fed with them, feasting with them. But they shouldn't have. These false teachers were gospel deniers. Verse 4 again tells us that they turned the grace of our God unto lasciviousness. They were those who were saying, well, grace abounds. Therefore, let sin abound. We can live in liberty and in luxury and in pleasure because grace will cover all of these things and there is no, there's no sense of the necessity of morality in the midst of God's generosity. And of course, this is a denial of the gospel. It is the grace of God that leads us into godliness, a holy life. But there are those who are denying this and they're described as being spots, spots in your face of charity. And again, Debate as to what this word means. It has a sense of a rock. Some suggest some sort of obstacle or stumbling, but it's used over in 2 Peter. Turn back to 2 Peter, please. A couple of pages. Again, you will know that in 2 Peter, there's much parallels with, with Jude. 2 Peter chapter 2, the verse number 13. Again, these are brute beasts. Verse number 12, it says, And they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that counted pleasure to riot in the daytime, spots they are and blemishes. And this idea of defilement in the people of God. They have verse number 14. They have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Such as defiling the people of God. These are spots, blemishes in the work of God, impurities in the church of Christ. These false teachers denying the gospel, they're defiling the church. Similar language used back in Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we have the exhortation that we're to look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. You see the connection here? That as people apostatize in the church of Christ, they thereby defile the church by their continued presence. Sin in the camp. The Ekans in the people of God. And so at present, those who are present in these love feasts in their false teaching, in their gospel denials, were abusing the church and defiling the purity of the community. We need to guard. We need to guard the table to preserve the gospel. This table is a pure table. That's the intention, that we must not tolerate sin in the church and thereby defile the body. This table is intended by God to be a reflection on earth, of the reality in heaven's court. 
Whilst all may observe, all may not partake. There is to be discernment made, I guess even the church leadership, discernment made as to the rightness of people receiving the ordinance. And that's not people lording it over others. That's a recognition. This table has been marked by purity. You see, we are those who must remember this table is a gathering of the justified. This is the Lord's table for the Lord's people, those who are justified freely by His grace. But those who are justified have also been sanctified and are being sanctified. It's a table to mark purity, not sinless perfection. But those who acknowledge the grace of God and when they sin, run to Christ, acknowledging their sin, not hiding their sin, but confessing their sins and realizing that we're only sinners saved by grace. Thankful for grace, but careful not to be gospel deniers by abusing grace. You've got to remember that here. This is a table that requires purity. And so it is a feast that reminds us of charity, and it certainly caused us to recall God's generosity, requiring purity, but finally a feast that is to be received in piety by the church. Look at the description again. Feeding themselves without fear. This high-handedness that they had regarding their errors and their false teaching and their sinful ways. It'd be an awful thing, wouldn't it? If you had someone in the church guilty of adultery, who with a high-handedness could come and take the Lord's table. And yet, of course, we know such things happen in the church of Christ. People come and without fear, and I mention adultery because that's by and large many of the issues in this particular context. Immorality in the church permitted and tolerated and encouraged. All manner of worldliness. And those who are consumed by this world coming to this pure table and coming without fear. You see, we must receive the table with fear. Not in terror, but in recognition that in Psalm 130 there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. See, we feast before the Most High God. Oh, what delight and what wonder. Why was I made a guest here? But never presume, never take God's mercy for granted. His love and His grace must be remembered with His majesty and His glory. Hence, we rejoice with trembling. And so it's a strange little phrase in the middle of this epistle. And perhaps quickly passed over. But how much there is to learn when we come to our feasts of charity. And that we come with fear of our God and love for the gospel.